Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now i think it's your turn <laughs> yeah to announce announce you- what the podcast fuck man all right, episode 134 of I'm Sorry What the Podcast. I'm Christina. That's Bucktooth Amanda. I'm Amanda. Sorry, she was showing me her rabbit, her bunny teeth. Her my my bunny teeth. Old men like them. <laughs> Some people find them attractive. <laughs> creepy old men at the bar. Creepy old men at the bar. At the bar. Why are we going real Wisconsin there? Oh, at the bar. Creepy old man at the bar. All right. Anyway. Well, welcome sup i got nothing to say yeah we just talked for 40 minutes and then started so, so all of our to say's have been said um we're sorry. good we're everything's cool everything's we're good copacetic no one's in the hospital no one's dying mm-hmm. well but some and, people uh, are dying but we're not so yay for us so you know good good for us i guess <laughs> yay um what <laughs> I just start my story. Sure. <laughs> Tell me we're your gonna, story. Chrissy. We're gonna skip the bullshit today, okay? Yeah, we already bullshit too lo- long. You can't <laughs> hear it all though. No, personal. It's, it's a lot. So we're just gonna <laughs> we're skipping the bullshit. Welcome to I'm sorry with the podcast. Hey, hi, how are you? Christina's um, story is boom. What's my story? I, well, oh, that worked this... less good than I thought it would. <laughs> less good. Nice. I'm gonna tell you about the Sneed sisters. Oh, a sneed. a sneed. I needed a sneed. I needed a sneed. <laughs> no, I was trying to find like, because I did two really heavy stories last two times. So I'm like, I'm going to find a nice little historical crime that's not as dramatic. And then I lied because this is a and fucking it turned out to be really dramatic. <laughs> this is a fucking ride. Let me tell you. All right. <laughs> 4.30 p.m. November 29th. 1909 1909. he set the scene got it the police in east orange new jersey receive a a phone call from a woman on the line who just asked for a coroner i need a coroner yeah the officer said there wasn't one and told her to contact the local doctor um there's no coroner here yeah goodbye a half hour later the same woman telephoned dr herbert m simmons uh, who was a deputy county physician and asked him to come to her house at 89 West 14th Street. The woman explained that a girl had killed herself in the bathtub. Oh, that's unfortunate. So the doctor arrived and at first thought the woman, it was like a prank call because the house looked abandoned. Um, the paint on the house was all chipped. The lawn was super overgrown. The windows had no curtains, uh, but he knocked on the door anyway, just assuming no one would answer. However, an old lady clothed in all black with a black veil over her face answered the door. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait. <laughs> Is this a movie? It sounds know. like a movie. <laughs> I know, right? 
Um, so she just opened the door, stepped back into the house, and started walking up the stairs. Didn't say a fucking word. Follow me is what she said with her brain. <laughs> uh, the doctor was like, that's fucking weird. Uh, but followed her anyway. Uh, but he I also would, thought, I would never. I would never, <laughs> I would never follow her. <laughs> Ever. Um, he noticed that there was no heat source in the house. The gas wasn't on. There was no fireplace. There were no candles lit. There was no furniture or blankets aside from a few old chairs, a single cot, and barrels for side tables. Well, I mean, she saved money, I guess. Uh, So the woman led the way to the bathroom on the second floor. She opened the door, offered him the only lit candle in the house. Again, it's fucking creepy. (laughs) (laughs) When he went into the room, he saw a bathtub. It's about four feet long. It was like a wooden bathtub lined with like tin. Okay. Yep. Um, and just under the surface of the water lay the corpse of a young woman. Her head was toward the faucets and her hand was still clutching a washcloth. Okay. This, the doctor asked the creepy old lady how long she had been in the water. And the woman claimed she only discovered a few minutes, a body, a few minutes before calling him. He tried finding out who the girl was, who the woman was to her, but the woman would only say, you'll learn soon enough. <laughs> what? she has to be a character (laughs) no this is real this is this bullshit this didn't happen you're making things up this is fucking terrifying uh when he quit continued questioning she finally gave him some answers she claimed to have last seen the girl that morning when she said she was going to have a bath and a long nap uh and that she hadn't checked on her all day because it wasn't unusual for for her to sleep the day away the doctor saw the woman close the woman's clothes neatly folded on the floor and a note slipped out. The note read, last year, my little daughter died. Other near and dear kindred too have gone to heaven. I long to go there too. I have been ill and weak a very long time now. Death will be a blessed relief to me and my sufferings. When you read this, I will have committed suicide. My sorrow and pain in this world are greater than I can endure. Oshi M. W. Sneed. Sneed. <laughs> Gets me every time. I'm like... <laughs> Oh, need. So the doctor, need is what all people need. <laughs> so the doctor was like, that's fucking weird. And called the police. Wow. And was like, hey, you told her to call me, but you guys should probably come because this, this is fucking weird. There's <laughs> something fucking weird about this. So Oshi's body was removed from the house and taken for autopsy under orders from detective officer William O'Neill. Uh, and began to, he began to immediately like investigate the death. He immediately set out to examine the suicide note, question the woman in black, and search the house for evidence. Just keep in mind, this, there's this fucking old lady dressed all in black with a black veil over her face. She's carrying a single candle, the only yes. thing lit in the house. Yes. The woman told the detective that she was Miss Virginia Oceana Wardlaw and that she was also the aunt's victim. The victim's, victim's aunt. aunt. There you go. <laughs> the girl was Oceana Wardlaw Martin Sneed, but everyone called her Oshi. Oshi. The Oshi. Virginia. I'm sorry. She's dead. I'm in under weird circumstances. Calm yourself, Amanda. Virginia told Officer O'Neill that Oshi hadn't been well since her first child died in 1908. She had grown despondent since her husband's disappearance in April. The only light in Oshi's life was her newborn son, who was sickly and recently admitted to the hospital. Officer O'Neill toured the house, found it cold and bare. He asked Virginia why the home had no furniture and gas and like why she hadn't even bothered to turn the gas on or light a fire. 
Mm-hmm. She, you know, she she said she claimed she had only arrived two weeks prior and the furniture hadn't been delivered yet, but kind of skipped over the gas question. Okay. Virginia tried to ignore the officer's questions and kept prattling on about her noble genealogy and what upright ilk she stemmed from. Good for you. All right. Let's talk you. about the dead body in the in the bathroom. <laughs> so the detective listened while looking over the note. And then he looked around the house and then he asked her, do you have a pen and some ink? And she said, no, there's none kept in the house. And the detective said, so how how did she write this note? Do you know who I am? (laughs) (laughs) When Virginia refused to answer the detective immediately, she, he became suspicious that this was not a suicide. This sounds like a movie. It's, I know it should be like an epic, it should be an epic horror movie. Like, like this is the history of the house. And then they're like, just wait, it gets crazier. Okay. Once the autopsy results were back, Oshi's death was identified as drowning. The, with starvation as a contributing factor. Contributing factor. (laughs) Oh, whoa. (laughs) That took, that was, that was hard. Uh, with nearly a fatal amount of morphine in her system. She okay. only weighed 80 pounds. Oh, good gravy. He added the sad fact that she would have died anyway due to the advanced malnutrition. But the other weird fact was she had also been dead in that bathtub for over 24 hours. And she just noticed her. Yes. Quote, unquote. So due to her unwillingness to cooperate the police held her as a potential witness to a crime. They also discovered that there were several life insurance policies that had been taken out on Oshi and several suicide notes found in possession of Oshi's mother that were written in the same hand and similar style. So basically, I'm going to get into this family. Okay. So basically, the cops suspect that the family killed her for a life insurance policy. Yeah. So we're going to, let's talk about this family. So Caroline is the eldest was the eld was born in 1847, the eldest daughter of John Wardlaw and Mary Elizabeth Goodall. Her first sister Mary came a year later, followed quickly by Virginia, the aunt to the girl. The three women were inseparable. All of them possessed teaching credentials from Westland Female College. So you've got three main characters: Caroline, Mary, Virginia, all sisters, and then you've got the dead girl, Oshi. Okay. Just summing it up because there's going to be a lot of names thrown at you here, and all of them have Oshiana somewhere in their name. So it's fucking weird. Oshi, the dead girl. Okay. Mm-hmm. How is she related to these women? I'll get there. Okay. Okay. Oceana was born in September of 1885, and she is the daughter of Caroline, the oldest sister. Okay, perfect. So when Oshi was three, or was three, seven-year-old Hugh, her brother, suffered a terrible fall down a flight of stairs. Sadly, the child passed away from his injuries. His parents previously had taken out a life insurance policy on the child and received $22,000 when he died. Uh, Okay. After Hugh's death, the Martin family disappears from the public record until about June 9th of 1901. And on that day, the neighbors heard a loud crashing sound coming from the Martin home. They rushed over to find Oshi's father lying dead on the ground. Caroline hovered over his body as Oshi sobbed nearby. Caroline yelled at the little girl and growled a single word to the child, remember, and then Oshi became very quiet and just sat there silently. See, there's some like, like killer sisters just get money from killing off the rest of their family except each other as with her son robert's <sighs> life was insured with caroline as his beneficiary so his obit per his obituary the colonel suffered a long illness before death the though the exact disease is unclear 
When her husband passed, Caroline collected $10,000 and took Oshi to live with her family in the South. Virginia, the second or the third youngest, the youngest sister worked as a headmistress of Seoul Female Academy, which was a prestigious boarding school in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Or Virginia, or yeah, Tennessee. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. There's the oh, what's name. happening. Her name is Virginia. I got confused. Okay, <laughs> so Mary, the the second oldest sister, was Virginia's assistant. And then when Caroline came to, to town, Virginia offered her a job managing the school's funds, and Caroline agreed and enrolled Oshi in the school. Hey, okay, I'm caught up. Over the year, Virginia allowed Caroline basically to gain control of the school, she, and she was described to have like this weird persuasive power over her sisters caroline's the lead Mm -hmm. bitch all right cool she completely changed the curriculum the students became very uneasy when the sisters began padlocking random rooms and switching pupils from classes for no reason the most unsettling thing however is that the women would walk the campus corridors in all black garb and black veils oh this what Okay. Startle students. Sometimes they would come into sleeping girls' rooms and just stand there during the night. Makes sense. I, you know, why wouldn't you do that? On more than one occasion, the Wardlow sisters hired a man to bring them to the Evergreens Evergreen Cemetery after the sunset. Caroline, Mary, and Virginia would gather various around various graves, and they would hold hands and chant until dawn. So they were witches. Witches. Uh, basically because of the sister's behavior attendance at the school began to dwindle and then they were fired from the academy just don't come back okay so then virginia looking for another job contacted her 93 year old aunt oceana seaborn goodall (laughs) so this is the aunt oceana not oshi the girl who is dead in the bathtub right like a great aunt yeah okay okay she's not going to be in this story anymore so, so well, virginia basically so don't get attached is what you're saying yeah she well she was 93 and she basically said virginia you can come take my job okay. um, which was the director of montgomery female college in christianburg virginia so she got kicked out of a different school and became the director of a new school so mary See, followed this is the problem this is the problem with education with the church they're like, oh, you didn't do well here because of your bad choices. We're just going to send you somewhere else where they don't know about it. And then they can figure it out and then send you somewhere else. Okay, yes. cool. Anyway, go on. So Mary followed Virginia and then so did Caroline. So now they're all three working at the Christian Bird School. And walking However, in black with veils around there. Yes. Cool. Caroline soon became the school director. Um, and but this time she would not enroll Oshi in school. She stayed with her aunt Mary and claimed that Oshi was introverted and preferred the company of family to that of outsiders. So then, um, Mary had two sons, John and what's his other Fletcher. So they married a pair of sisters and were living in Tennessee. And at this time, Caroline uh, somehow convinced her nephew John to leave his wife and come to the school and start working at a position at the school. Okay. However, after a series of unfortunate accidents, John abruptly died. Weird. So the first accident, while on a trip with Caroline, John fell from the train. 
Caroline and John insisted the fall was accidental, but the brakeman was certain he either was pushed or intentionally jumped. A few weeks later, a groundskeeper at the school found John nearly drowned in a cistern. John swore this too was accidental. He claimed he was taking measurements and slipped or was pushed. He wasn't quite sure. Why is John covering John? So they like are anti-guy then. This is like a weird coven situation because, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just hearing all the names and all of the victims. A week later, jumping to conclusions. The sound of Virginia's screams rang through the sleepy halls. Two teachers followed her cries to John's sleeping quarters where they opened the door and found him standing over her nephew as he thrashed about his sleeping gown mysteriously caught fire. Oh. She said that the accident happened while he was lighting the kerosene lamp. However, the lamp had no fire and his clothes were drenched in kerosene. So he slipped and fell and accidentally poured it all over himself and then accidentally lit himself on fire instead Mm -hmm. of even getting near the lamp. Oh, perfect. He died from his injuries 20 days later, and his last act on earth was to name Virginia the beneficiary of his life insurance policy instead of his wife. Don't get me wrong. I love the aesthetic of the all black, kind of just taking out men as they please, getting money for it. Like, that's a great thought. But like, when you nice villain aesthetic. People, yes, I like that. But again, sounds like a fucking movie. So the police half-heartedly investigated John's death, but the sisters and all the witnesses swore that it was accidental. They collected $18,000 in life insurance policy money. So after John's horrible death, she called up her remaining nephew, Fletcher, to leave his (laughs) wife and come work at the school. Fletcher Fletcher resisted, but eventually Caroline convinced him. Uh, However, when Fletcher's wife tried to visit, Caroline wouldn't allow it, and the couple divorced. Wow. Uh, Fletcher could, I know like your brother just died here, right? But could you come and do his job, please? Yeah. Thank you. Oh, your wife? No, she can't come. And um, in fact, it's going to be a problem. So if you guys could just divorce, that'd be great. She's then about you don't to even have weird. Uh, just about to? <laughs> okay. So, Oshi at this time was 18. And Fletcher and Oshi had always been close. <gasps> no, they're cousins, right? First cousins. Uh, yeah. According to Mary, when he came to Christianburg, they spent most of their free time together at the home of Mary Sneed. Fletcher and Oshie's relationship devolved from natural affection to romantic affection. So gross. No, Um, no. So the sisters disapproved of the affair between Oshie and Fletcher, but they eloped to New York where Fletcher found work in a lumber mill. Okay. So... They were furious to learn that they were married, but quickly reconciled themselves to the fact that they were married. But that is believed to be because Caroline had already ran the school into the ground and they needed Fletcher's income. (sighs) So the school went belly up and closed. The sisters took what little money they had and headed north to live with Oshie and Fletcher where creditors couldn't find them because they were deeply in debt. Mm Yeah. And so by 1903, Oshie had four policies totaling 24,500, which dollars and Fletcher had $24,000 on his life with his mother and two aunts named as the beneficiaries. This totals like almost $900,000 in today's money. Right. If you're to make the the math happen. So shortly after the family arrived, Oshie realized she was pregnant. The pregnancy was rough on the young woman. Instead of gaining weight, she started to waste away. 
Um, some thought she wouldn't survive the pregnancy, but she delivered a daughter in February 9th of 1908. Uh, the baby's name was Alberta Sneed. Alberta Sneed. Aw, oh, little birdie. But she only lived two days. Oh, well, that's sad. So, oh, she became pregnant again by autumn and suddenly Fletcher disappeared, leaving a suicide note. And he, oh, she's aunt and mother basically just said he killed himself. That's just like, yeah. Oh, he just killed himself. Here's the note. See? So then uh, they tried to get life insurance money for that him, but they couldn't prove he was dead because they didn't have a body. Okay. So they couldn't get that. Um, her preg- her second pregnancy was even worse than her first. She was bedridden. She was weak. On July 18th, 1910, Oshie gave birth to a frail son and named him David Pollock Sneed. Uh, a, na- a neighbor named Ethel Moore assisted with the delivery. But according to Ethel, when she was questioned by the police, Oshie appeared weak and hungry. When the women in black were out of earshot, Oshie told Ethel that her mother and aunts were starving her to death. Yep, sounds... About what I would have assumed. So, oh, she had apparently always been the object of scorn for her mother. She just kind of treated her like garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, so they called a doctor, uh, Dr. William Pettit, who was called in to look at her. He found her suffering from depression, general weakness, and malnutrition. But he And he continued to visit the household until he realized that his instructions for her care were not being follow right clearly you're not doing what you should be doing to make her better so they weren't cooperating and he wasn't getting paid so he stopped visiting uh the sisters called another doctor who smuggled food to oshi when he saw her condition and then they kicked him out because they found out he was smuggling her food not long after report something (laughs) well he he, will get there okay Uh, So not long after Oshi's baby was born, he sneaked through a window to check on her, but Virginia threw him out. He contacted a lawyer who told him that there was nothing that could be done. Several months later, they called the Dr. Pettit, the first doctor again, uh, and they found that Oshi to be even weaker than before and no longer pregnant. The baby named David, they told him, had been taken to a hospital where he was in poor health. He was later placed in an orphanage by the sisters. However, he died when he was just nine months old. Oh, so that was all just a story. Was it, he died when he was nine months old, like when they adopted him out or that happened and they just said that he was sent out to somebody else? No, he's, they, they took him to a hospital because he was Uh super sick and then they Uh kind of took care of him at the hospital and then they took him to an orphanage. Okay. And then he died. I guess the way you worded it made it sound like actually, because it was like a, however he died. And I was like. I thought it was that he died and no, that didn't him, actually happen. Okay. Yeah, they took him to a hospital, took him to an you, orphanage, and then he died in the orphanage. Virginia told the doctor, Dr. Pettit, to inform Oshi that she was dying and to tell her to make a will. Instead, Pettit had a nurse brought in to care for Oshi. The nurse stayed just one day before being removed by the sisters. Rather than pay the $100 doctor bill, the sisters offered to make him a $1,000 beneficiary in Oshi's will. What the heck? Mm-hmm. And the doctor's like, mm. He declined the same. (laughs) He declined, deciding to take steps against the family. Uh, But what he did not know was that Oshi was being given regular, unnecessary doses of morphine from her postpartum pain by her mother and aunts. When he returned to check on Oshi before he reported the strange case to the police, he found that the place abandoned and the sisters gone. So they moved her to a Brooklyn neighborhood in September of 1909. Then Virginia, wearing a thick black dress and a black veil, Again, I love the aesthetic. I like it, but <laughs> visited, stop it. 
a New York attorney asked him to help a dying woman prepare a will. He came to Oshi's bedside while her mother and aunts chanted prayers over her. After the prayers, Virginia asked Oshi if she would like to make a new will, to which Oshi agreed. She told the women they needed a doctor and some food. The sister said they could afford neither. He offered to write them a check. And while the sisters left the room in search of a pen, talked to Oshi. She told him that she was dying, reached under her pillow, and gave him her will, in which she left everything to her grandmother and asked him to make himself executor. Okay. The sisters offered Karaba $7,000, which was the equivalent of like Uh $250,000 to make them, to make them the beneficiaries, but he refused and they dropped him as their attorney. Uh, in 1999, she knew she knew, uh, in 19, October of 1909. So a month prior to her, Oshi's death, Virginia was served a defendant in a lawsuit for non-payment of the price of a brand new piano. Her response to the plaintiff was wait until we bury our dead. At this time, she was, oh, she was near death from lack of food and medical care. Um, on the day she died, neighbors reported seeing strange women enter the house and stay for several hours. Later, they would be identified as Caroline Martin, Oshi's mother, and Mary, the other aunt. Oh, Detec- God. <laughs> so Detective O'Neill remained convinced that Caroline, Virginia, and Mary withheld food from Oshi and dosed her with morphine. He speculated that Caroline or Virginia overdosed Oshi and slipped her emaciated body in the bathtub to drown. I mean, sounds like it would make sense. So remember from the beginning that they don't have Caroline or Mary at this point. Virginia was the only one in the house. So she has been in jail this whole time. So Virginia stuck to her story. She hadn't seen Oshi since the morning of her death. She had no reason to go upstairs that day, not even to use the only toilet in the house. Furthermore, she had no idea where her sisters or Fletcher were. On December 16th, 1909, so a month later, officers arrested Mary Sneed, Oshi's aunt, uh, and mother-in-law, in a New York hotel room. When they um, asked her what she thought the outcome of her arrest would be, she responded, it will end in death. I would welcome death. I am old. I can't help anyone. I am of no use. She was charged with murder and placed in a cell near Virginia. All right. That same day, Caroline Martin, Oshi's mother, turned up in a different hotel registered on the under the alias Mrs. Maybrick. Investigators found several notes, all nearly identical to the one pinned to Oshi's dress Yet Virginia claimed once they had left the East Orange House, claimed Oshi hadn't once left the East Orange House since they had moved in. They found several suicide notes. Right. Almost identical to each other in her mother's hotel room. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a pen and paper in the house and she never left the house. So... Mm -hmm. So Officer O'Neill decided to search the home that Caroline had been staying at. The rooms were just as bare as the East Orange House with broken bits of furniture scattered around. They noticed suspicious dark stains on the living room floor leading to the bathroom where Oshi died. I'm sorry, they were searching the house that Oshi was in. Okay. In the kitchen, investigators opened the oven and found a burnt bundle. The pile was a mass of yellow hair and bones. One of the bones appeared to be an impossibly small femur. Another bone looked like part of a human infant skull. Oh, no. So Caroline locked in a cell block with her sisters, attempted to call all of the shots. She ordered lavish meals. Caroline wouldn't speak to any law enforcement or media without her lawyer present, and she forbade her sisters to talk as well. Their lawyer, Franklin W. Ford, quit the case because his clients thought they knew the law better than they did. he did. The judge appointed Why am I here? <laughs> a new attorney <laughs> to take his place. <laughs> There were multiple postponements and injunctions filed. 
Inevitably, all three were formally charged. Caroline would face trial for the premeditated murder of her daughter. The other two were charged with accessory to murder before the fact and for talking Oshi through suicide. During the summer of 1910, Virginia became ill and she actually was believed to be starving herself and she eventually starved herself to death in August of 2000 or August of 1910. Okay. Um Caroline began to behave very erratically after Virginia's death. Relatives from the South asked the judge to declare her insane. Caroline insisted her mind was sound. A team of psychiatrists agreed, and Caroline was allowed to proceed to trial along with Mary. Caroline eventually pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter. The judge sentenced her to seven years in prison, a sentence Caroline thought too harsh. She screamed and shouted that she was innocent and had nothing to do with Oshie's death. But the gavel went down and she was sent to prison. Then Mary (laughs) escaped all consequences because Caroline's conviction was manslaughter and not murder. You can't have an accessory before the fact. Yeah. So Mary was a free woman. Not long after her conviction, Caroline became insane. I think she was already insane. Became became insane. It just happened. She Uh. was sent to the Trenton, New Jersey insane asylum where she died two years later. Fletcher Sneed was eventually located under the name John Lucas cooking at the New Murray Hotel in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. He was questioned, but no incriminating evidence was found against him and he was never charged in connection with his wife's murder, but he also wouldn't answer questions as to why he left. I think he knew and he was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. So I... I'm curious if like all of these different things, it's supposed to lend to the fact that maybe they were actually witches and they had like this overarching like power over people and they worked together to do stuff because everything it's like they chanted and they just talked him into coming and then they talked him into doing this. Don't worry. It was implied in the newspapers quite a bit. Yeah. Cause I was like, that's, I mean, all these stories, I'm like, they have this persuasive charismatic way of doing things, but they also just walk around in black and with veils and mm-hmm. don't really talk or use words <laughs> so interesting she's okay. need is buried in mount hope cemetery in westchester new york near her father brother and two children fletcher sneed lived out his life in los angeles california his mother mary moved to oakland california mary and fletcher maintained that virginia and caroline were innocent i know you don't watch new girl that much i mean you've seen it right you know, I watched how, like I think I got to season five. <laughs> you know how Nick used to. So then, you, then you should have seen this part. Yeah. You know how Nick used to date a girl named Caroline. Yes. Um, the line that keeps popping in my head whenever you said Caroline was Caroline Carlu Carlu Carline. It's Caroline when uh, Jess pretends to be his girlfriend at that wedding when it's the first time yeah. he sees <laughs> yes. her after whatever. Yes. <laughs> Carlu Carlu, oh, you're fancy. <laughs> Uh, oh interesting that was weird isn't that weird what a strange like i'd never heard of it before movie-esque story as i'm reading it i'm like this sounds like a horror movie this is creepy as fuck this is one of those stories that they take and they're like based on a true story and then they make it super over the top but the real story itself is just like i'm just imagining like in in the horror movie aspect where it's like a grizzled white boned hand like <laughs> and with like yellow long nails <laughs> yep and then and then they open the door yep. 
um fuck that <laughs> no and then the doctor just follows her yeah He's like no i'm gonna wash my hands of this changing my career see you later <laughs> no thank you oh uh, that was good mine is not so like i mean there's definitely things that happen um but it's not as entertainment value e as yours well um, tell me about it but it kind of is because it was named after a movie Mm. the reservoir dogs murder oh okay yep okay Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so do you know this case i have heard it on a podcast but i'm not like well well versed in it i think it was like probably three or four years ago like i it's not something that's like in my brain so and i hope this and okay so this is like my second week in a row doing like a teenagers go crazy kind of murder okay yes i'm sorry I'll do something different next time. <laughs> but I did it and I finished it and I was like, wait, I just did the Krista Pike one. It's fine. <laughs> and it was kind of the same idea where it was like teenagers just got out of control. It's okay. Right? I did two family massacres in a row. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and then I was uh, like, that's when I was like, I gotta like not because it's really, it's getting dark, man. <laughs> let's find something a little less recent and a little less sad. I mean, it's sad. Don't get it's me sad, wrong. But it's more but creepy. It, right. Right, right. So, Michael Moss was born December 22nd, 1983 in Liverpool. Um, He was a typical young child. He loved soccer. He wasn't academically highly marked, and he loved anything mechanical. So, he was totally that kid that would pull things apart just to put them back together. Mm -hmm. Um, My brother does. Right. And he loved, like, motorbikes and... Mm -hmm. This is, you know, obviously in the UK, so there's some slang that I use that isn't necessarily what in the US we would say, but we get the idea, right? Throughout. But he loved motorbikes and race cars, and he liked to tinker around with engines and all that sort of thing. So he may not get like high reading marks, but he was very smart in that sense. Yeah. Uh, He was super close to his dad, uh, but sadly his dad changed when Michael was 11. He had gotten had like, into a werewolf <laughs> he had a brain hemorrhage oh, so. his dad changed when michael was looked into what <laughs> after that he became very aggressive and mean um it's like he had some brain damage that happened and yeah. eventually later that year he did end up passing away from issues with the brain hemorrhage okay um and this was super hard for michael because he was the one who like got him into all of that mechanical stuff mm-hmm so after this, Michael became very disruptive and rebellious at school, which eventually sent him, that was weird. Okay. Sent him, I heard a creak, like someone was opening the door and it scared me. This eventually sent him to a different school. So they kicked him out and they had to send him to like a referral unit. Mm-hmm. So it's like a children's home referral unit uh, for educational needs is what they called it. Uh, there, there he seemed to be happy at first, but, but then began to start going missing. And this was like a larger situation. So he would go missing, he ditched class and this became very overwhelming for his mother who had other kids too. And so she didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, his social worker and psychologist, cause she was doing what she could to try to help set him up at a different kind of care unit. And this was the literal children's home. He would stay there. They had sign in, sign out kind of similar thing. Like we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were welcome to go in and out as they pleased. It wasn't like they were restricted. They just needed to make sure people knew. Right. 
Um, <clears throat> and so this was basically to give, as his mom said, because I watched an interview with his mom, it was to give her a break because she she's like, I could only do so much. And I just lost my husband. I just, you know, and it was just one of those times where I needed some help. Mm-hmm. So they sent him here where he had a place to sleep. He could go to his mom's if he wanted to, whatever. Michael was doing fantastic here. It seemed to like really work well for him, like giving that extra freedom of being able to do what he needed to do what he wanted to and choose kind of what he was interested in. Um, He went to grief counseling, he got his schoolwork done, and he seemed to get along well with the students. Very social from what the teachers said from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, In September of 1999, when Michael was 15, so he was there for like years, his pretty much his whole high school career, he was there up until he was 15. There were a couple of new boys who joined the children's referral unit, um, Alan Bentley and Mark McKeefrey, McKeefrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two were known to be bullies at their other school. So they went to school together before this and both got sent here because of bullying behavior. Uh, turns out they had beaten a boy up so bad that he had to go to the hospital and this was never actually reported to the police. So they didn't have it on file saying that they had done that. And so they were sent to this referral unit, uh, McCaffrey and Bentley didn't do well here like Michael did because Michael like, you know, blossomed when he Mm -hmm. came to this different situation where where there were more teachers, less kids. He just did better when he wasn't around so many people. Um, They didn't adjust their behavior. They would lash out and bully anyone that they could. Uh, Michael kept, kept a distance from the two violent boys the best that he could. It was a small school, so he tried his best to not be around them. But Bentley's ex and Michael started dating at some point when he was 15 and Bentley did not like this. He okay. was uh, jealous and revengeful, we'll say. Uh, he passed a message at one point. This is like kind of to give an idea of what he was thinking. He passed a message at one point that said, tell Moss that next time I see him, I'm going to boot his head in. Mm. So it's so funny because like, even now as I'm reading this, it it really is very similar to the Krista Pike case that I just covered because yeah. it's that same like, jealous teenager are you so aggressive right now sir like calm it down yeah um and then (laughs) right after a while though he like laid low so they kind of it just fell by the wayside um then another boy joined the school named graham neary it seems like this boy because he so he says that he tried to make friends with michael but Michael knew that he also talked to Bentley and McCaffrey. So he just didn't, he's like, no, I'm good. Um, But it seems like this like entrance of a new person that Bentley had to like prove himself to seem to like amp him up a little bit to do, Mm -hmm. to follow through with some of his words. We'll say that. Yeah. Um, So on November 12th of 1999, the three were celebrating Bentley's birthday at his home. So they went to Bentley's mom's house and they were playing video games. And then they decided they were going to watch Reservoir Dogs, which is why this came to be known as the Reservoir Dogs murder. Mm -hmm. And they were drinking just straight out of a vodka bottle. Classy. 15. Perfect. Just what we look for. Mm-hmm. Neary ended up passing out at the house. So the newest boy um, and Bentley and McCaffrey decided to call Michael. So McCaffrey called cause he's just connected to Bentley. He's never made like threats or anything mm-hmm. and told him that they had like, a, he's like, I have this motor 
motorbike that is super cool, like talked it up and was like, I really want you to see it. I have a question about something because he knew that that was like a passion of Michael's. And so at 1 a.m., 1 a.m., Michael goes out to see this sweet ass motorcycle that he's been talking about. He's like, we got this cool thing. And he told the staff, like Michael told them, hey, I'm going to go out and look at this motorbike that McCaffrey is, you know, found or so-and-so has with McCaffrey. So I'll be back. I'm just going to go check this out Mm -hmm. because you have to just let the staff know that you're going. Um, and so he left, uh, when he got to Moss Lane park, he met up with McCaffrey and they walked into the park. Obviously there was no bike. Like this is literally the same thing, but with boys Mm -hmm. as the Krista Pike thing. So it's not just girls that get overly jealous boys. It's boys too. Um, and as they got in there, Bentley jumped out and headbutted Michael. Jesus. Uh, then he started to beat him and he stripped him naked for whatever reason. And kicked him in the head and in the naked groin. I know. I don't even have a penis and it hurts me. Like that made me clench. Yeah. So once Michael had been knocked unconscious, they left, went back to the party to brag to Neary, basically, it seems like was their motive to be like, hey, look at, you know, guess what we did, whatever. And they tell him to come with them. We got to show you something. So he didn't, they didn't tell him what it was they were going to show him. Mm-hmm. So they woke him up, brought him out. When they returned to the park, for whatever reason, they began beating him again, even though he's still like unconscious. Right. Uh, they pretended to play soccer with his head. Oh! <gasps> Uh, they jumped off of the climber at the park, both feet onto his head. Uh, they cut him up and at some point Bentley slashed his, a vod- with a vodka bottle, like broke his vodka oh. bottle, um, and uh, stabbed Michael with it. So he was stabbed, cut up. They stomped on his head, kicked his head, um, like pretty much this. did whatever. And then they played tic-tac-toe. They called it knots and crosses. So that's kind of cool. Knots and crosses. On his body. Um, with what? With the vodka bottle, they cut oh, little pieces stop out it. of him. Stop yeah. it. Eventually, Michael died at the park from a broken neck. So that's how much they, like, aggressively kicked his head and whatnot. Um, after this, Bentley reenacted a scene from Reservoir Dogs, which is, again, where the name came from, where he broke, he took a part of the broken bottle and he tried to cut off Michael's ear. So he began trying to cut off his ears, like in the movie. Um, 999 was called at 3.31 a.m. And an ambulance went to the park, but nobody spotted his body because he was down in this like gully. So when they pulled up, they were like, they looked around for a little bit and they're like, I don't see anything. Was this like a prank? They assumed that it was some stupid kid calling to Mm -hmm. just get them to get up and go. And they left without seeing anything. Uh, this call was believed to be McCaffrey, but it was never really validated. Um, they don't know why he did it, but they think that maybe he was feeling guilty or maybe he wanted them to come and find it or what, but they think that he called. Uh, at 7.30 on November 13th, 1999, so the next day, a man walking his dog came across Michael's body with over 100 injuries on it. Mm. Um, Michael... not Michael, I said the wrong word, police (laughs) were called and they came right away. They began going house to house and asking if anybody saw anything, heard anything. So anything in the neighborhood, including 
the care home. So they went to this like unit that they were all living at and they knew that Michael hadn't come back and he was the similar age as the kid that they found. So they kind of went like, Hey, we found this. Did you know, do you know of anybody who's missing? Did you see anything, hear anything? Um, they gave the police Michael's picture and were like, this child is missing for them to compare and see if they could ID him. But because Michael's head was so mangled, they couldn't even tell that it was him from looking picture to body. Um, so one of the staff volunteered, well volunteered, basically took a bullet and went down to the department to identify Michael Moss's body. And so he went and he's like, yep, those, you know, that's him. He has whatever, you know, like the birthmarks or moles mm-hmm. or whatever, like not just facial recognition. Yeah. Um, the police went to Michael's mom and told her that they had found his body and t- kind of gave her the story of what happened that morning. And she was devastated. They said, she said that she would not let them come in because she knew that they were going to tell her something bad. Mm-hmm. So she, they're like, the police goes, you know, you can kind of laugh about it, laugh about it now, um, just because it's not in the moment. But she was like throwing stuff at them and trying to like just scream and shut the door on their face so that she couldn't hear the news because she just knew it was one of those like senses. Right. Um, and he, but anyway, so at the carry unit, the staff was filling authorities in on the threats that Bentley had given to Michael against him. Um, and that Michael was going to meet up with McCaffrey and McCaffrey was Bentley's friend and you know all the things they're like we're thinking this is what's happening mm-hmm. it's like they knew and they had from what they said they had warned Michael not to go meet up with him they're like you know we can only do so much because we have that open door policy we can advise them not to do things right but we couldn't like stop him from doing it um everything was piecing together at this point uh, before the police even had gotten a chance to track down the boys, Neary had confessed to his mother who brought him to the police station to confess to them. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, was feeling he... very guilty. He was the third boy that came in. And Did he initiate, like, was he, he I can't he remember. Did came he help after... Um, yes. Okay. But he... I mean, I don't want to say he had less to do with it, but he kind of did because he didn't like initiate the fight. He came and then they were doing all this stuff. And I think it was just a, oh, this is what we're doing now. And he was brand new. So I think it was partially a trying to fit in with his new friends. And a, which is, well, if I don't do it, are they going to do this to me? Exactly. Because they walked him to this unconscious body and was mm-hmm. like, look what we did. And then started beating on it again. So um so his mother's like no we're going to the police station and made him turn himself in and he named the two others as well he's like I can't I can't live with this so here's this right uh they found a comic strip in that Bentley had drawn in his bedroom which depicted him murdering Michael and they don't know if it was before or after the murder so they don't know if he was fantasizing about it or if he was just reliving Living it. it um even so neary neary was the only one who admitted was admitting to the crime at the time he uh, both of them were like no we didn't do anything we did nothing that didn't happen neary's lying mm-hmm. and he's like no i definitely did stuff but this was what initiated it these are the people that 
did all this like terrible terrible stuff Mm -hmm. um so they had a look had to look for some forensic proof because they didn't have a confession at all so they had to look deeper into other things um to tie them to it so they took the washing machines from their houses which is a weird move but Mm. i get it um just to look at the dirty clothes if there was any like residue left from blood and whatnot and there were some fingerprints on the bottles that they found so they had to bring those in to get analyzed they also recovered michael's jumper so his jacket and on that there were footprints that matched bentley and mckeffrey's trainers mm-hmm. so his shoes uh, the shoes so they also recovered a bloodstained top from neary's house along with some trainers that matched a shoe print that was on michael's groin it was so hard that it left a shoe print on his groin. <gasps> and so they could match that. It was so clear that they matched it with uh, Neary's trainer. So all three boys officially have been linked in some forensic way. So granted, Neary already confessed and he's like, yeah, I, I participated. Mm-hmm. Um, the three boys were all charged with murder. Uh, they ended up doing five post-mortem, post-mortem examinations on Michael, which took like six weeks before his mother could lay his body to rest. And so she said that was probably one of the hardest parts is just waiting to be able to be like reconnected with my son mm-hmm. and be able to say goodbye properly and n- never knowing when it was going to happen because it was a constant like, well, we're going to do this and then, you know, we'll see where we're at and we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. So Liz, his mother, that's her name, um, developed some really severe social anxiety fears because of all of this. Like, she's like, I relived all of these things that they told me that I've read about. And it was, it's very sad. And she goes, I, you know, have a fear of like, breaking glass like sends her into a tizzy because she knows that that is something he heard right before he was killed and like that sort of stuff it's just so sad to watch her talk Mm -hmm. about it because you can tell that she's she's like I don't go out anymore because I don't trust that people are you know just public spaces make me uncomfortable because that's where all of that happened and um so anyway their trial began July 2000 Uh, Their defense was that Michael had asked them to beat him up so that he could get some injury compensation to buy a new motorbike. Fuck. Yeah. You know, beat beat him up, but also then you killed him and sliced him up and whatever. And that was your way of him getting compensation to get a motorbike that he would never... Okay. No, Mm -hmm. you're lying. Uh, This was dismissed, obviously. And the jury heard the real explanation of the murder, that it was revenge and jealousy. And here's all the reasons why. Um, then on July 26th, both Bentley and McCaffrey were found guilty unanimously and Neary was found guilty, uh, a 10 to two majority on their, Mm -hmm. uh, terms or whatever. Bentley and McCaffrey got sentenced to a minimum of 10 years. That was it. And Neary got sentenced to a minimum of nine. And that's how they like explained it after I'm assuming because they're minors, they didn't go into more detail than that. Right. After two years, Neary was able to to try to appeal and Liz gave a victim impact statement. So this was one of the first in the UK. This was one of the first um, times that they used victim impact statements 
to during appeals and during like um, parole hearings and all of that. And so Liz just, she's like, and then I just kept having to relive it. And Mm -hmm. it was, you know, as much as I wish that I would have felt like it helped, I feel like it didn't because by 2013, all three of them had been released. Ew. So 10, 12 years, they all were in and that was it. Um, They were only like 25 to 28 years old at that point. And it's just wild to me that it was that little amount of time for such a brutal, brutal murder. Um, And that is the story of Michael Moss's murder and the Reservoir Dogs. It's very, there's, it's very cut and dry because they didn't, there wasn't a lot of like chasing their tails with it because they're stupid teenagers. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're stupid teenagers who didn't really understand, not understand, but didn't think about consequences. Mm-hmm. So I just stumbled upon it and I was like, ooh, this is good. And I wrote it on my list. And then I just was, I'm going down my list right now that I've been writing down since we had our break. Yeah. Of things I wanted to look into. And turns out it was just another revenge teenage gang up on one person killing. So I'll find one that's not that for next week. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I have a funny news story. I don't know if you've heard Ooh. about this. It's about elephants. Have you heard about this? Uh, unsure. Okay. So 68-year-old Baya Murmu was collecting water in Rapai village located in India. Mm-hmm. And a herd of elephant, elephants came upon her. Uh, she tried to flee, but one of the elephants rushed her and trampled her to death. Oh, no, I did hear about this. <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> so they rushed her to the hospital. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> but she died from her injuries. Uh, they brought her body home for funeral preparations to take place the same evening. As the ceremony was taking place, the same herd of elephants appeared from the forest, which caused the funeral attendants and people at the funeral to run. And they left her body behind. One of the elephants then reportedly attacked the woman's corpse by picking up the body and throwing it in the air. Mm-hmm. I can't. Uh, and wasn't it like miles apart? And then they destroyed her home with three other houses being damaged because of the stampede. An elephant never forgets. <laughs> An elephant never forgets. Oh my God. That's sad for the woman very strange kind of like what the heck what did i ever do to you i was just getting some water man jeez why do you have why do you have such a vendetta against me uh that was needed some levity yeah i was just like oh what do you mean it (laughs) it came back for revenge after it trampled her oh good god what did i tell you about coming near my watering hole lady (laughs) Get away from my watering hole, bitch. Oh, <laughs> uh, good one, good one. That's that's it. That's it. All right. I gotta go some potty, so elephant levity. Yeah, elephant You're levity. Welcome. Is that like a new segment? Elephant levity. Yes. <laughs> every at the end of every episode, I tell an elephant story. <laughs> an elephant story, an elephant fact. Uh 
Let's let's add some elephant levity into this. <laughs> oh, good gravy! Hmm. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. Spread the thanks word. For listening and yourselves. Stay away from elephants. Apparently. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well. Bye, bitches. Bye bye.